This is an ABC podcast. Somewhere deep within the bowels of the British Museum in London is a spot where Dr Irving Finkel works, reading and identifying bits and pieces from ancient Mesopotamia, from the civilizations that flourished thousands of years ago around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern-day Iraq. The artefacts that he studies are particularly enthralling, I think, because they come from the people who created the world's first cities and palaces. And they were the first to use a written language to tell stories, a language called cuneiform. Irving Finkel is a curator who specialises in cuneiform, which was written in clay tablets with little wedges. One day in 1985, a man came into the British Museum and showed Irving a palm-sized clay Babylonian tablet. And on that tablet was the story of a Babylonian god, a god that tells a man called Atrahasis that the world is about to be flooded and that he should build a giant boat to save himself and his family and that he should bring animals aboard this boat as well. This, he realised, was a story of Noah and the Ark written well before the biblical accounts that we see today in the book of Genesis. And this discovery led Irving Finkel on a kind of detective hunt to discover the size and shape of this Babylonian ark and the mountain where it was said to have come to rest. I spoke with Irving Finkel late last year when he visited Australia as a guest of the Nicholson Museum at Sydney University. Hello, Dr Irving Finkel. I'm glad to be here. Cuneiform, have I got that right? Is this the earliest form of writing? It's the oldest we know from archaeology. So it's always a bit risky to be dogmatic about the earliest because somebody can come along at any moment on a new excavation and find something which throws everything out. But on the basis of what we know, that is the first time um, human beings had the conception of making marks on the surface which would record their language, which somebody else could look at and retrieve the sound of the words from that. So that's, that's the first time it actually happened, which is pretty significant in the history of the world, because you might glibly say, where would we be without writing? Some people might say we'd be a lot better off without it, but that's another matter altogether. <laughs> but uh, as I say, something like 3300 BC, that sort of period, we've got the first evidence for these sorts of experiments. And what does Kinofilm look like on the tablet? Well, it's made up of... Um, applications of a stylus, a bit like a chopstick, and each application embedded in the clay, which is what the tablets are made of, produces a wedge. And all the signs, which there are many hundreds, are made up of different combinations of these uh, breeze-shaped components. So um, you had to learn how to make the basic signs when you were a boy, and then you had to spend about another six years learning all the signs. You were beaten with a stick till you remembered them all. But then you had a kind of apparatus which allowed you to write down by ear on uh, this clay surface the Sumerian language, which was the first one we know about, and then after that the Babylonian language too, and also several others as well. So they ended up with a very fluent, very beautiful and very flexible system of recording words, which lent itself to the recording of lots of unrelated languages, and what is more, you could certainly use it to write English. I often decided that when I'm Prime Minister, this will be the first thing that we bring back at school. <laughs> That's going to be a whole other interview. I, I, I'm definitely up for that, just quietly. How were you taught cuneiform? Were you beaten with a stick in order well, to learn it? I was beaten very vigorously, but with words and sarcasm, not actually a ruler over the knuckles, because I had an extremely demanding professor who was a kind of Sherlock Holmes individual, very aesthetic, very critical, never a word of praise, who used sarcasm like arrows of acid. So you had to learn really, really fast. And I was in a very peculiar position at that time because I didn't realise how brilliant he was and how privileged I was, not for a while, but I was the only student. How expansive is cuneiform? Does it have a good vocabulary? Can it describe abstractions like love and hate and joy and sorrow and, and all those sorts of things? Okay, first thing we have to establish is that cuneiform is the writing. Right. 
So the writing is a very flexible writing system, and they write by syllables. So they split a word up into different syllabic components. There's a sign for each syllable. You spell the word and squash it up, and you spell the words. So, so it's like Irving Finkel. For example, right. it's the right. obvious choice. Yes. Okay, <laughs> so this is the writing system, but the language is a different matter oh. because languages, of course, are much, much older than writing. They must have existed since the beginning of time. So you have to learn the writing and the languages that map onto that writing, Precisely. in other words. Well, I, I suppose my question is, then how expressive can cuneiform be of those languages? Well, that's a very important question, because it's easy to imagine that an ancient language is somehow behind us, and as it were, more primitive, not quite up to what we can do today. But that is not true at all, because they had an extremely extensive vocabulary. They had many synonyms and um, unusual words and common words and loan words from other languages, and they could write abstracts with no difficulty. They could... Um, be sarcastic and ironic and, and they could write really? poetry, they right. had meter. It was in every way exactly what you would understand a normal language to be in a normal human society. Because the people who did this were, in my opinion, and I think this is a really very important matter, that these ancient Sumerians and Babylonians that we can spy in on over their shoulder from these bits of dead writing, so to speak, are absolutely the same species as we are. It must be thrilling to sort of see humour on a stone tablet that's 5,000 years old. Well, actually, um, I have to say, some of what are obviously the best jokes are not absolutely the sort of thing you might trot out at a dinner party. <laughs> For example, there is one, I think, yes, yes it's like sorry, this. You, sorry, have, yeah. you have an elephant walking along and then a mosquito lands on its back and the mosquito says, oh, did I hurt you? That's a really hot Babylonian joke. <laughs> so whether you'd like to spread it yourself further afield, I don't know. But they have a lot of vocabulary for which we don't have any equivalents ourselves. So if you had a Babylonian here, he might think the English was rather impoverished. Because, for example, in the marshlands of Iraq, a very crucial resource were reeds which grew by the riverbank. And they had a huge vocabulary for reeds. We have reed, big reed, little reed, and that's it, basically. But they had a mass of technical vocabulary, which in their own context was very important, for which when we translate something, all we can put is uh, reed, as it were. The, the last great Assyrian king, Asurbanipal, yes. we know had a library. We do. What do you imagine that library to have been? Well, we have in the British Museum about 20,000 or so pieces from the library. And when they were discovered in the 1850s, um, they were a bit the worse for wear because at the fall of Assyria, when Ashurbanipal lost everything, the Babylonians from the south and the Elamites from Iran in the east, they ganged up on the Assyrians and they conquered the Assyrians. It never happened before, really. And the library... Um, there was a lot of violence. Oh, no, they smashed it up, did they? Yeah, we're not quite sure whether they did oh. it deliberately or whether there was a collapse. Or we, we're not, but, but what we've got is lots and lots of pieces, some big, some medium and some small, and idiots like me have been spending their <laughs> time ever since 1850 putting them together. But as a result, we have a pretty good idea of what that library was because we can see this, firstly, that Ashurbanipal was an unusual ruler in that he was an effective military person and obviously very charismatic and so forth, but he was a scholar because he was trained by somebody in the court who was himself a very famous scholar and he was destined for the priesthood, but his older brothers died and he became king. But he had inside him a respect for learning. So when he became king, one of the things he tried to do was to bring to Nineveh under his control the whole of traditional writing and law that was written on clay tablets from the preceding epochs. He wanted to have all knowledge under one roof. So it's quite a spectacular conception, and we can see how this worked because there are letters written to agents from the king in Nineveh saying, these compositions we don't have, so I want you to go to the libraries in the south and get them. I don't care how you do it, but get them and bring them to Nineveh. And when these tablets from the south came in their funny Babylonian self-writing, there was a chancery where the best calligraphers in Syria wrote them out in perfect writing for the king's library. So when Layard and his successors came down upon this library, it was in fact a state of the art encapsulation of all knowledge. It was all broken and fragmentary, but in itself, that's what it represented. 
I've mentioned this on this program before, but it's sometimes said that the ancient Romans are about 90% recognisable to us, to us modern people, and the 10% that's different is very, very different indeed. Do you feel the same way about the Mesopotamian people? How, how recognisably like us are they to you? Well, in my opinion, one of the crux questions of the whole of investigation of antiquity, I don't know about percentage, but of course you have... In, in considering this issue, you have, as it were, the outer person and the inner Homo sapiens. And I have a conviction that the inner Homo sapiens is a universal, unchanging thing all over the globe and always has been. I did too. And then you have on top of it all sorts of veneers, such as funny dress, funny eating, ideas about religion, Lord knows what, some of which have an effect and some of which are just cosmetic. But the thing about the Babylonians, for example, if you take... Uh, writings from about 1800 BC. We have private letters. And these private letters are, to me, often a really good window on the people who are involved because they are sometimes very sarcastic. So there's a lot of correspondence that goes like this. Two days ago, I sent the barley by donkey as requested. Um, where's the silver? Please answer this as soon as you get my letter. And then the other letter goes, return letter goes, this, am I your brother or am I not your brother? Funny that you should have written, because I sent the silver yesterday, so you should get it tomorrow. So this is exactly the checks in the post phenomenon <laughs> that everybody relies on to keep their head above water. So you have in this letter a bit of irony, you have untruth, you have manipulation, and you have the crucial role of money all in one encapsulation. Of course, the Babylonians had gods and godlings and demons and demonesses and all that. They did. How did it work when you were born? Were you born under a star or a god that was assigned to you? Well, that's also an important question, and it varies with time, because originally, say, from in the third millennium and the second millennium BC, a new baby was consecrated to a particular deity. So I think if you were the prince or something, it would be one of the top trinity Famous and important people had their names compounded with the most important gods in the pantheon. But on the other hand, um, I think families and probably even tribes ascribed to a particular branch of one of the families of gods and many of the children would have their names uh, associated with that god. And the whole idea was that they would look after you as you went through life. Now, this has always been a crucial matter in human operations. People, as it were, take out insurance in the hope that that will avert evil. But the gods who were supposed to look after everybody, theoretically it was a sound principle, but the gods in Mesopotamia, like everywhere else, were modelled on human beings. So they were capable of falling asleep, getting drunk, committing adultery, and not concentrating on looking after their flock. So at any moment, this system had a windy kind of gap here and there which led to trouble, so they had to deal with that. And there were various ways of propitiating or attracting attention or writing laments and all these sorts of things in order to make up this shortfall of the supposed protection. But in principle, that's how it worked. Tell me about a demon, a Babylonian demoness by the name of Lamashtu. Oh, Lamashtu. Lamashtu is a very terrifying character. We know a lot about Lamashtu. She's the most identifiable of a whole sea of demons. And she had a lion's head, um, eagle claws and wings, and was a venomous-looking person. She's described as prowling down the street at night, <laughs> sniffing through the locks to see whether there's any young... Little well, innocent babies. babies, yes, and uh, sniffing for babies yes, like that. And uh, the, the plan would be that you'd have on the wall this Lamashtu where she was portrayed with all her names written out very carefully in cuneiform writing because she had lots of different names. So the seven names might be written there, meaning I know who you are, you're this one, this one, this one, this one. So when Lamashtu looks through the window, she thinks, Oh, I'm not going to go in there because they so she goes on a bit further. And she was the personification of the perils of childbirth and um, the vulnerability of a newborn baby. And Lamashtu emerged out of the aeons of time in the past as the personification of this danger. So she was the reason why babies died. Babies died in childbirth or in their first year. There was, yeah. She was the reason for infant mortality. That was the way they could explain it, what to live with the awful truth of it, I suppose. That's right. Say. But they, wouldn't, they didn't use it as a, a cover term for the reality of cock death, as it were. 
I mean, we can consider it from a pompous perspective as a personification, but for them, this was a real evil force. And um, they believed in Lamash. Right, she, she was a real thing. She wasn't like a, an abstract concept. Not an abstract concept, right. no, a reality. And there's an extra few bits of evidence which support the idea that it was a reality. One of them is that there was another demon in Mesopotamia, like number two for fame, called Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Who, yeah, who was very ugly, kind of distorted features, rather hideous-looking thing, and sometimes is regarded as an evil thing in himself, but not at all. Pazuzu was her arch-enemy. So if you had an expensive Lamashtu amulet with her portrayed with all the writing, what you might do is, at the top, you would carve the face of this demon Pazuzu looking over the rim, going, ah, like that, so that when she <laughs> looked through the window, not only would there be this spell and the, the idea that they knew all about her, but the hated Pazuzu was there, and that would be a deterrent. Now, now, so, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yes. Is Pazuzu, isn't that the demon that's used in the book and the movie of The Exorcist in the mid-70s? Isn't that the sir. demon that possesses Linda Blair and has a my spewing green sir, bile? I'm proud of you. This is absolutely true, and it's a scandalous matter. <laughs> I really feel that lawyers should take up, at this late stage, the reputation of Pazuzu. Because Has he been defamed? He would never have done. Right. He's been defamed here. I think that's the case. I'll tell you something funny about that, too. I went to see that film once when it came out with a girl I was going out with at the time. You see, so we went to the cinema to see it in Brighton and after about 20 minutes we had to leave because she couldn't stand it any longer and we had to go home and I had to put her to bed with hot milk and read her Winnie the Pooh, which was not my plan, let me tell you. So I've always had a resentment against that movie. <laughs> so... Were, was there a concept, though, nonetheless, of demonic possession? They certainly did. They had an idea that demons could treat you in a nasty way, pull your hair and cause you pain in this kind of way, but there were also some that got into you. By the ear, when you're asleep, the most dangerous thing for a normal Babylonian in this kind of possession way is, in fact, not so much a demon as a ghost. Ghosts in Mesopotamia... Some of them were harmless and innocuous and some of them were kind of half and half and some of them were sadists and really unpleasant types. And, and those are the ones, the unpleasant, dangerous, sadist type, who were much feared by Babylonians because they would go into your ear when you were asleep and possess somebody. They would take over your intelligence so that people would behave in an odd way. And the exorcist, who would be summoned to the house, if you could afford it, would consult with the patient and examine them and see in their behaviour symptoms of this kind of presence and they would have um, spells to drive out the demon very powerfully magic words and recitations and all sorts of ritual to oust the thing and leave the patient in peace you have a tablet in the british museum of a female ghost who's holding a lead. Can you explain what's going on there and what her story is? Wait, that tablet, I love that tablet. It's really incredible. It has on it magic against evil ghosts. That's its genre. And on the back, the exorcist who wrote it drew a picture in the clay with a very, very thin point. So you have to hold it in the right light to see it. Now, I used to think, see, what you have is this. You have a tall, thin character striding along with his hands in front of him and they are tied. And then ahead of him, so to speak, walking along, there's a rather plump lady with a straight back and a long gown. And I used to think that the woman was the ghost and that she was a maiden aunt. And what they did is they made her a gigolo so that the <laughs> gigolo would follow her everywhere and would keep her happy in the underworld and she wouldn't come back. But since I've started to write a proper book about this ghost thing, I looked at it again and I think it's the other way round. The tall, skinny character is the ghost. He's the one who's coming back and he's the dangerous one. So they furnish him with a voluptuous female and he follows and she takes him off on the end of the lead down to the underworld oh. and she keeps him happy. So it's a reversal of my earlier interpretation, I'm afraid. But of course, the important thing, if you're a proper scholar, is that if you have an idea, you should be prepared to relinquish it with the benefit of further wisdom. Is it not true? Indeed. So the whole point then was to keep ghosts down in the underworld, yes. to keep them happy there, otherwise they'd wander up to the surface. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, when people were dead, 
They were buried, sometimes under the floor of the house, sometimes in a cemetery, other kind, but they were buried. And all being well, they would stay there. So there were special recitations at the time of burial. So most cases, there was no more trouble. When they came back, the Babylonian understanding of it was that they had a certain justification for doing so. So the magical recitations include a whole list of people who might legitimately be a ghost. So somebody who fell out of a chariot and was run over in a battle, or someone who's lost at sea, somebody who fell down a well, somebody who died in childbirth, all these things were regarded as a reasonable case for a ghost to come back and clamour for attention. They're not getting their offerings and they want their offerings or they want sympathy or they want proper burial or they want something. And as I see it, the aggregate impression you get from all this literature is there's a kind of sympathy. And the plan is that you try and give them what they need to go peacefully back. So this drawing, this is a very costly and elaborate ritual and you make these figurines because they made the woman, they made the ghost out of clay. They were furnished with clothes and all this kind of stuff, buried in a pit at sunrise and they were expected to go away and not trouble you. So that was probably a case of really a bad thing where the, the ghost wouldn't leave them alone and kept coming back and coming back and eventually they had to get a professional to do a big job. So they were seen more or less like distressed, lost children who just needed to a bit uh, like be that. led back home. Um, more or perhaps like this. Imagine you're making um, breakfast porridge in the kitchen in a Babylonian house and you see a ghost for a moment. Well, the, the first thing is you jump and the second thing is blast. I'm going to have to do something about it. And the biggest analogy, the closest analogy to me, is if you see a mouse in the kitchen at home, A, it makes you jump, and B, you realise you've got to get someone in to deal with it, you've got to put down a mousetrap, but it's a bit like that, I think. So this brings us to the story of the Babylonian account of a great flood, which predates the biblical account. When did the British Museum first get an inkling that the Mesopotamians might have an earlier story of the flood than the Hebrews of the Bible. Well, that happened in 1872. It was quite an extraordinary matter because um, this was the time when the British Museum had got all the tablets from the Ashurbanipal Library in India we were talking about before. And one of those tablets, which had come to, to Britain, um, had on it um, an account of the flood which was read for the first time in what is now my department by a, um, the, the Assyriologist called George Smith, who was a very brilliant reader. And he was sitting in the museum one day. He was always interested in literature and mythology, and they soon realised there were lots of things of this kind among the Royal Assyrian Library, and that was his baby. And this large piece turned out to have on it, he read it off, because it's written in very clear writing and he was a good reader and he discovered to his amazement that not only was it um, an unsuspected parallel to the flood story but actually it ran in detailed overlap with the flood story because um, among other things um, it says in the Assyrian that when the waters had when the rain had stopped and everything that the Babylonian Atrahasis as you mentioned before um, released a, a, a bird to see what had happened because they couldn't see what, what was outside and the bird came back and then the next time they released another bird and when the third bird didn't return so they knew that the trees were above the level of the water which is exactly what Noah did in his ark um, in the book of Genesis. So the, the thing was that um, it was a fairly new discipline then and the decipherment was not such a recent thing and he was the first person to read this and he knew his Bible by heart, of course, because all 19th century persons did, especially scholarly types. And he dropped the tablet on the table, which you're not allowed to do in the <laughs> British Museum. No. no one's ever dared do it since. And then he got up and he started to run around the room holding his temples between his hands and making funny noises and eventually starting to divest himself of his waistcoat and shirt because the impact of reading what looked like the Bible in the Syrian, on an Assyrian tablet, was unsupportably surprising and shocking. So he took his clothes off. He started to divest himself of his clothes. He, 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 he must have been full of explosive reaction to it, which in the modern world, it would never happen again because 
1850, the role of the Bible and the church and, and people's adherence and knowledge of all that. It was all part, everybody in 19th century novels quotes from the Bible all the time. It was all over the place. And nobody had any suspicion at all that such a thing could have happened on one of these barbaric-looking documents. So that started it. Now, look, there's another dimension to this which is very important because the tablet from Nineveh, which he read, was written in the 7th century BC, and they knew that it was about the 7th century BC. Well, of course, nobody knew when the Bible was written. This is a complicated question even today. But people who do text analysis and they have theories about the Bible... um if they were told that this story was, came into being in about the 7th century in Hebrew, nobody would bat an eyelid. So the thing was, the priority of the Babylonian thing was not by any means established by the discovery of this first tablet. Ah. So clergymen had a very, very bad time when this announcement was made by Smith in front of the Prime Minister, and everybody in Britain knew all about it, even chaps from the Clapham Omnibus. And there was a huge reaction from clergymen who couldn't come to terms with Holy Writ appearing in this barbaric form. And of course, when they realised that the chronology was such that you couldn't establish which came first, they are, well, obviously, they copied it from the Hebrew tradition. So this was a kind of to and fro seesaw for a long time. And it was only in later times when earlier manuscripts um, came to light where the precedence of the Babylonian story became established. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Podcast, broadcast and online. We fast forward now to 1985, and you're working at the British Museum, and someone came in with a bag of antiquities, as people do. They come in to see you all the time at the British Museum to say, Dad picked this up in the Middle East or in China or whatever else. And, and what, what is it? And yes. what is it? And this was a man named Douglas Simmons, who was mm. an extraordinary man in his own way. He was a child star, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And also, he had a very clever mathematical brain. He was the sort of person, if he needed a computer, made one. He was that sort of person. Anyway, he came in one day with this bag of stuff, and it was quite miscellaneous because there was um, a, a, an Egyptian... Shabti figure, there was a, a lamp, some coins, and a clay tablet. And he poured them out on the desk and asked me to explain what they were. Now, how had he got hold of all this gear? Well, he told me afterwards something about, about it. His father um, had got this stuff. He was a collector of curios, and he bought the stuff, he said, years and years before, and Douglas didn't know anything about it. And when he was in the sixth form at school, he did his exams, and he did better than his parents expected. Now, this doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no. His father moved by this unspeakable development, went up in the loft and dug out this bag of stuff, and he gave this bag to Douglas as a kind of reward. So he kept it, and uh, one day he brought it into the British Museum, poured out the stuff on my desk. I, of course, picked up the tablet first, because that's obviously going to be the most interesting thing. And it was clear from the very first lines that it was part of this famous flood story. What did it say? What could well, you read? The story is very dramatic, but when, once the gods have decided to obliterate mankind, once they've decided, this god Enki made the decision that it was a mistake to destroy everything. So he leaked the information that had been resolved on by the parliament of gods to a human being to make him build a boat. And this tablet that Douglas brought in opened from the very moment where he starts to whisper the message to Atrahasis to build a boat, spurn riches, give up your house, build a boat and save life. And it's a very, very well-known passage. So when I read it, I just couldn't believe it was there. But that was enough for him. I had to look at this other thing and this other thing. I asked someone to look at the Egyptian thing. And then he, off he went with this tablet. He and took I, it away? Yes, he was happy with this level of knowledge. And I didn't do what I would have done now, which was to lock the door and tie him to a chair. I don't know... 
I suppose I had this idea that all things come to the British Museum in the end, but it was, in fact, when I look back on it, rather daft. But some time later, I met him in the British Museum in one of the galleries looking at something else, and I said, you remember that tablet? Can you bring it in again? And he did, and that's what happened. So when I got my hands on it, and I sat down and just started to have a good look at it, and the, the bit beyond the cliched opening six lines which everybody knows was without any kind of parallel so it was a part of the story which hadn't made it onto the other tablets that we have it was something new because the god Enki in this version of the story not only tells Atrahasis to build the boat but he obviously doesn't think that Atrahasis is very able and capable without clear instructions so in the story he tells him about the boat which he has to build. To to what level of detail? Well, a remarkable level of detail. The first thing is, it's round. The ark is round. The ark is round. So when I read this, I put the tablet down. I didn't throw the tablet down on the table, but I put it down and I reached for the dictionary to make absolutely certain that the word that I thought meant circle was the word that meant circle. And, of course, it was. So what on earth is this, a round boat, a round boat? And, of course, when you start to think, which is what you're supposed to do, and... The great rivers of the world, um, even to this day, have on them round boats, which we call coracles. So in Wales and Scotland and in Ireland, there are still coracles. They're rather small. You sit in them and you paddle. They're kind of a round boat with a curved bottom. And they're designed to work like taxis on the river. And even in Tibet and other places in the world, in India, they still make these coracles. So it, after a moment of befuddlement, it seemed to me, obviously, that if it was a round boat and it came from the Euphrates Tigris world, it was going to be a coracle. Oh, of okay. course, because it, it doesn't need to be an ocean-going vessel, does it? No. It, it's just going to be something that floats. It doesn't need to go anywhere. No Portsmouth to uh, New York. No, exactly. All it has to do is to bob around on the top of the flood waters with all the life inside it, and then when the waters go down, it would gradually, gradually, gradually land somewhere. That was its job. It wasn't a boat in that sense. It was like a, 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 a lifeboat, like a walnut sort of idea. So the god is giving instructions. God Enki is telling uh, the Noah of Uzatrahasis, make, make a boat yes. to save yourself and your family. Yes. And, he had and three sons like, like Noah did. Three sons? Yes. There's going to be a great flood. I'm, I'm sick of humanity. I'm going to wipe out everyone except you and your, your family. Yeah. And bring animals on board? That yep. was on the thing as yes. well? Yes, two by two, it even says two- in the Babylonian. Yes. Two by two? Yes. And to do that, you're going to have to make this, what is essentially a, a gigantic sealed round basket of a boat. Exactly. So in terms of the question, what kind of boat could it ever be that would work in a flood? It would naturally be a coracle because they don't sink. Not only does it not have to go anywhere, but they don't sink. They're very buoyant. But in the context of all the live, the, the, the livestock that you would have to collect and so forth and so forth, it would have to be, so to speak, enormous. And... This information, it has the area of a field, which is a known size. The walls of it, it says, compute out at seven metres in height. So it's about two-thirds of a football pitch kind of coracle, not one for you and your mother-in-law. And maybe Two-thirds of a football pitch, yeah, that, that big? Yeah, that sort of size. This is in, in terms of the divine instructions. And it had to be made out of stuff called queer, which is C-U-I-R, um, it's the kind of frothy stuff that grows on palm trunks, which is very strong and it can be twisted and twisted and twisted into a kind of rope. And this rope was the raw material from which the boat had to be made. And it wound round and round and round like a floppy basket, as you say. And then the next thing is they have to be ribs and then inside. And then the whole thing has to be coated in bitumen inside and out to make it waterproof. And there you would have the ark, which would be the lifeboat for the world to come. And, and does it have a deck and a, and a house on board as well? It has a deck and a house on board, as you might expect from your nursery thing, but it's not quite the same shape as the nursery thing. So in the story, it explains. You see, you have inside the walls of the, of, of the coracle, you have these great arching ribs that go all the way down and they meet at the bottom to make a kind of floor. And then, according to this Babylonian instruction from Enki, stanchions were created out of wood and the second floor was laid on top. And then there was a house to be made where um, Atrahasis and Mrs. Atrahasis and the little Atrahasises would live and all the animals would be downstairs. Are you, are you telling me that you, that you realised that these instructions to build this gigantic ark were actually realistic? Well, with 
talking here about mythology. We're talking about an episode of crucial history within mythology about rescuing the world from this huge deluge. And it's a story that ran for a long time. And when we get this new tablet from Douglas Simmons, which was written down in about 1800 BC, the measurements are given. It's not only that you have to have this or you have to have that. It's the quantity that is necessary, the amount of rope to make the boat, the amount of bitumen that you need to waterproof it. The details are all given there and the numbers are written in. There are detailed numbers there for, for what the amount of rope and the wood and, and, and the stanchions and everything else. The number of stanchions and the quantity of bitumen. It's a kind of shopping list of stuff that you will need to build a good quality ark. So it's all given there. The data which is conveyed from the God to the man about building the boat, they are specific numbers which on investigation turned out to be realistic in this respect. Normal-sized coracles were made in Iraq in the same way since time immemorial. And somebody involved in the transmission of this story must have commissioned in a Babylonian school this question. If a normal coracle has this size and these dimensions and this property, if we had one as big as this, what would we need? There's no escaping the fact that that must have happened. And so the data was generated by brain power, and somehow or other, this really exact material, which you wouldn't think belongs in the mythological narrative, is plonked in the middle of this story, which is actually to do with, are they going to survive? What's going to happen? Is it the end of the world? Who wants to know all the details about the boat and the stuff? Who really wants to know that? Yeah, wouldn't the narrative stumble on all those d- well, boring details? Exactly my question. So there is an answer possible about it, because this tablet was written in about 1800 B.C., and this is quite close to the time when these stories were written down for the first time, which means that for centuries and centuries back before that, they were oral literature. So you have a situation that a crucial story about the gods and man, like the flood story, was the bread and butter of itinerant narrators who would go uh, to a village and have a mess of pottage in the dark, sit around and they would tell the story. And everyone would be trembling with fright. And the way I see it is this. However good a storyteller you were, if you had the nub of the thing that someone was going to build a boat which was big enough to rescue all the life, you couldn't just get away with saying... Ah. Because these guys lived on the river. They made boats. That was their whole livelihood. You couldn't get away with it. And if you said it was going to be as long as the Great Wall of China, some burly bloke at the back's going to say, hey, just a minute. How are you going to do that, mate? How are you going to do that, mate? And how much, where are you going to get all that stuff? So I have a feeling that at that time when that story was in that (laughs) state, somebody decided to forestall this or perhaps after bitter scepticism to put this stuff in the story but what is really revealing is this that in george smith's version from the 7th century bc this same story is there in the court which was like versailles with musicians and dancers and tumblers and you can imagine tapestries and and the king on the throne and they would have stories and music and everything like that but nobody at Nineveh, all the Ponzi officials and eunuchs and all that, they didn't give a damn about boat building and everything like that so when it was read in front of the king, it was purged out because it was no longer so relevant. So, so are you saying like the George Smith's version was for the royal court and for that audience, but the version you have is essentially a folk tale? Yes. It's the moment when what is a folk tale is written down at the court of Assyria in the 7th century. The text had been whittled and refined in that environment, in a first millennium urban environment. No one was interested in in all that technical stuff so it fell by the wayside it's terribly complicated the mathematics i had to get somebody to help me but the point was the compelling conclusion was that this data ended up with something which was as it were buildable so it's all very well having i suppose done all this work on paper but then you come to the real thing because the guardian discovered 
the nature of your work and wrote a huge feature on it. It turns out there was an ark before Noah, an ark story before yes, before the Hebrews. It sure did. And and that's when your world went kind of mad for a, a short while. It when, sure did. When the whole world wanted to know about it. Yes. And and there was a documentary that was made mm. where they were going to build this Babylonian ark on a riverside in India because Iraq is just going to be simply too hard. Were they able to do it to scale, the no, kind of scale? They weren't. They weren't. The, the, the guys who did it were specialists in archaeological boat reconstruction, so they weren't like naive optimists or anything like that. When I sent the first translation with all the details, they immediately knew that it was impossible to build it as described for this reason. The whole of the inside of this thing is supported with ribs made of wood. And that scale it would be impossible you couldn't get the wood you'd have to join hundreds of pieces of wood so it wouldn't have the strength and also if it was coated in bitumen the weight would be so much so that you couldn't support itself so that didn't worry me so what they did was that the most sensible possibility they could they could build and it was something like a third and a bit of the original size so it was jolly big Huge. and they did it they did it in India. It was fantastically wonderful. So they made it out of sight from you, I believe. They wouldn't let me go. They wouldn't let you go? Until it was finished. Right. They didn't want me interfering. Right. I think that was the truth. <laughs> well, they, they made this thing essentially by creating a gigantic coil of rope, yeah. uh, stitching the rope together, yeah. building it up to this big basket of a coracle ship, and then sealed it with, with bitumen. With the ribs inside. With the ribs inside and a deck and a, deck. And, and a Babylonian house on the top. Yeah. And, and you weren't allowed to see it until it was completed. But what was that like for you to um, step onto the beach or the, the, the lakeshore and see this thing for the first time, Irving? It's actually hard to convey in words because the boat was built in secrecy in a kind of clearing and there was a muddy path from the nearest road and the producer of the film wanted me to come through the leafy field and see the boat for the first time and they would film my face so that the impact would be there for the viewers of how amazing it was so this was a stressful thing for me because I'm not an actor and I wasn't quite sure what to do with my features because it was really <laughs> difficult to move along. The, the other reason why it was so difficult to move along is that six inches from my nose was a giant television camera going backwards. So I had to wade along this path trying to remember what emotion I was supposed to convey when I got there. Was it horror, shock, amazement? And eventually we got suddenly into the clearing away from it and I saw the boat and there was no possible way that I could have controlled any part of my expression because it was unbelievably exciting to me because it was beautiful for one thing it was a, a ship it was a it was a boat it was a she and generated out of this mad piece of clay the other <laughs> side of the world it was impossible to, to cope with it, really. So how delightful. So you go on its maiden voyage into the lake. Yes. And you're standing on the deck of this, this Babylonian ship, and you're a man with long white hair and a long white beard. Did, did that get an interesting response, Irving? Well, it, 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 it did, actually. Um, some of the boat builders were very old men, and when they launched the boat on the lake... The whole sky was full of dark clouds. These old men said, the whole of my life I've been here, I've never seen clouds in the sky over this lake. So they attributed it to the force of the story. So this is one thing, but the second point about it, which fits rather neatly, is that I discovered afterwards that all the workmen thought that I was a descendant of Noah. That's why they were, they were terribly respectful to me, terribly courteous to me, and they thought it was all my work, you see. So I didn't disabuse them. I didn't think I could find anything to say about it. Now, now just finally, one of the Bible stories is that the, the ark, when the floodwaters receded, was marooned on Mount Ararat, which we know is in uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey today, or Armenia. I'm not quite sure which one it is, but it's, it's in that part of the world. Yes. And I think today it attracts Christian pilgrims who are looking for bits and pieces of yeah. I don't know, ancient planks or whatever. What does your Babylonian account of the Ark say about its future after the waters receded? Well, look, the first thing is, in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't say that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat. It says that it landed in the mountains of Ararat. So it's a district, in other words. Like the Alps. Mount Ararat in Turkey is a modern name, not an ancient name. But it turns out that we have a map 
an ancient map from Babylonia in the British Museum, which has a view of the world, the circle, with mountains off in eight different points. And one of those mountains is the mountain which, according to Babylonian ideas, is where Atrahasis's ark came to rest. And the reason we know this is that there's a description of what's on all the mountains. On the one to the northeast, it says that if you go up the mountain, you will see these great blocks of wood, which they use the same word for as described in this Simmons tablet about building the ark. It's a quotation from the ark story. That if you go up there, you see these stanchions, these great stanchions, still preserved on the side of the mountain. So most of it had disappeared, but this wood was there. So there's no question that this is the mountain in the Babylonian tradition where they thought Atrahasis's boat came to rest. Now, the thing about it is this map is really rather informative. If you come down the mountain, you have to... To get back to the known world, you have to cross this circular bitter sea. So when you've done that and you land in Mesopotamia, the first place that you come to on the other side is labelled on the map as Urartu. Now, Urartu is the Babylonian name for Armenia. Urartu is the same word as the Hebrew Ararat. So the magical thing about it is this that the story was incorporated in the Hebrew text from a Babylonian forerunner. There's no question about it. It worked its way into the Hebrew thing. It had a different message. It was to teach about sin and how to be good and all that, which is not the Babylonian preoccupation at all. But the thing was that when they got the story, they got it lock, stock and barrel. But they had no idea where Urartu was because they lived in Jerusalem, these guys. They were in Jerusalem. They had no idea where Ararat was. It didn't mean anything to them at all. But the word passed into the Hebrew as the explanation for where the ark came to rest. So that's a rather convenient explanation for it. And all the people who spend a lot of money on native porters and expensive cameras going up at Ararat in Turkey, you can find whatever you like. there an oil tanker, a rowing boat, but it's nothing to do with Noah's Ark. It turns out that the world is ancient cultures are full of flood myths. Flood myths exist in China and in Ireland and in South America. Uh, they exist all over the world. And I, I wonder two things from this. Firstly is that perhaps some of these are folk memories of tsunamis from the past. The second thing is, I don't know, people seem to like stories of the earth being washed clean. Uh, what, what do you think of that? Mm. I think what people like is the idea that you've got 10 minutes to save the world. Because the thing about, <laughs> about Atra House is, and Noah is it, the clock was ticking for them and they had that ghastly thing that if they don't do it, that's the end of everything. That is one of its irresistible lures, I think. And that's why um, the Judeans found it so um, irresistible to recycle it in their own, in their own fashion. But, the flood, as we know it in the, the Bible, in, within Judaism, Christianity and Islam, it all has a common source, which is primarily the Hebrew text, but the thing that came beforehand. And I think there can be no question that the Hebrew narrative, as we have it, developed from and was an inheritance from this Babylonian tradition. And there are lots of reasons why this is, I think, plausible. Firstly, in Mesopotamia, they had floods because it was a riverine world and when everything was right and in balance there was no trouble but when there was there could be floods there could be destructive floods and the whole city would be flooded the whole it? city yeah. the whole yeah. country and if you investigate in, within cuneiform literature you discover that the flood is a kind of reference point in their psychology in their psychology what do you mean well it's like old men say like before the war it was like this and now it's like that the the thing about the the flood is that before the flood and after the flood is one of their reference points for chronology and the understanding of ancient history and what happened in the world. And I think, I believe that the force of the literature which describes the flood in Cuneiform, which is actually very powerful, very poetic, very forceful writing, is not just an invention of people sitting around in a bar and strumming a guitar, but actually that it's an echo of what must have been something like a tsunami, where most of the population and the life in the country was destroyed. And the gods in the Babylonian myth 
promised that there would be no more flood, like God in the Bible does. So the, the literary creation was something to guarantee that even though we know this happened and almost everything was destroyed and we survived, it would not happen again. Oh, it's like the war to end all wars, yeah. that, kind of, that kind of thinking. That you mean. kind of thinking. So that the whole point of the story is comfort is comfort, and it transposed itself directly into the Hebrew story as well, where God sends a rainbow, and whatever happens, whatever I'm going to do to you in the future, there might be plenty of unpleasant surprises ahead, but you're not going to have another flood. So I think the fact that it's so central in Mesopotamian psychology suggests to me that there is involved in this story a, a memory of a very, very distant, drastic inundation. But, but you're saying the point of the story is not the flood, it's the rainbow at the end. Well, psychologically, for the listeners. Psychologically, that's the point of the story. There's one other thing I should tell you, since you put me on the spot about this. That in the Atrahasi story, the gods decide to get rid of everybody because they're so noisy. They're up in heaven in their deck chairs after lunch, having a little snooze, and all this racket comes up, and they ah, get rid of them. We'll start. We'll build. You know, we'll create something else. This is really annoying. Uh, that's what comes off it. So, in the Hebrew Bible, people are punished because they're wicked. So, it's a recycling of that mechanism. But the truth of the noise is not literally the noise, because as the as the finale evolves, you discover that in their first round of creation, the gods forgot to invent death. So actually, the racket stands for an unending number of living things. And it's that problem that's being sorted out. So the myth somehow deals with all these issues and explains why people die and why they're barren women and sterile people and, and, and all these things. It's all wrapped up in one great understanding and it's tailor-made to Mesopotamian culture. And the biblical version is a perfect example of chucking things in a washing machine and they spin around and around and you take something out and it's, as you say, washed clean, but it's the same story in a whole different, very lively and marvellous fashion. Dr Irving Finkel, you have officially blown my mind with all this. I am so delighted to have spoken with you. I hope you come back on the programme. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed every moment. been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler for more conversations interviews please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app